Good morning, West Seattle Christian Church. Lead Pastor Worth Wheeler here on the first Sunday in May. Can you believe it? It's already May. Uh, and we are starting a new series today called The Epic Story. What I want to do for you here in this series is give you the overarching narrative of the story of Scripture. It's not going to be exhaustive with all of the nitty-gritty details of the whole Bible, but where we've just come from in the season of Lent, traveling through the last week of Jesus' life uh, during Holy Week or Passion Week, if you will, uh, the, the next part of the story is, how, what do you know about this story that God's up to that culminates in the person of Jesus? And so we're going to go way back to and begin in the beginning. Um, and so I want to set some context for Genesis 1, chapter 1, and what it is and what it is not. And it's important that I say this to you because my interest is not what we can do with a passage of Scripture uh, right now uh, that was written 2,000 years ago or 4,000 years ago uh, and we're removed from that time when it was written. What I'm zoned in on is something called uh, authorial intent. And what that means is, what did the author mean? What points are they trying to convey? Why do I want to do that? Because we can't understand what it means for us until we understand what it meant for them. What is it that Genesis 1 is actually trying to say? So here's the context. Israel, as a nation, has been slaves for about 400 years, generation upon generation of slavery. They've been abused, they've been beaten down, and they are only valuable to anyone for what they perform and what they produce. And they will only remain that way. They will only remain valuable if they're able to produce that thing, whatever it is. And that's a big deal. Uh, and that still rings true for humanity today because over the long haul, you start to believe that you're only worth what you can produce. And maybe, maybe that hit, hits you hard today. And this was such a big deal that they were, they were so used to their oppression that when Moses came to tell them that God was going to rescue them, they just couldn't accept it. It did not compute. And then things get messy in the story because they have generations where they've been, they've been sucked into following other gods, and then those other gods made their way into the Israelite culture. So much so that getting Israel out of Egypt was the easy part. So getting Egypt out of Israel, that was a whole other matter. So they came out of Egypt and they make it to Sinai and something interesting and profound goes on there. At Sinai, God marries the nation of Israel. In fact, the pronoun used to describe the nation of Israel at Sinai moves from the pronoun they to the pronoun she. And that's really important because if they're going to be married now to this God, quote unquote, they don't have a clue what this God is like. And so these stories uh, that come before that part in the book are now being shared with them, being written down to show them what their God is like so that they can be reintroduced to this God that delivered them with his outstretched arm. And so God brings them out and then he's like, I need you to understand what I'm like. And so he begins to reveal it to them through these stories starting in Genesis 1. Now, Genesis 1 is a poem. 
and the genre of the literature actually does matter because this poem in a very creative way is it's trying to make some points about who God is. It's not trying to prove how he created the world. Now, it could have been in seven days or it could have been a billion years. It could have been a ton of different things. Uh, and I'm fir firmly in the latter camp because science and God, they go together. They are not mutually exclusive. When I look at the pragmatic scientific world and then when I take a look at God and Jesus, I happen to think, yes, <laughs> all of them together. Now, if you need a seven day creation, perfect, that's fine, it's yours. You are free to believe that. But God in this poem is revealing glimpses of who he is. And the question then, is this, what can we learn about God from this creation poem? Now, one other piece that we need to pay attention to here is Hebrew is a very, very simple language. There are only about 80,000 words in the entire Hebrew language. You might not think that's, you might think that's a ton, but by comparison, there are millions of words in the English language. And side note here, Every language ascribes the most amount of words to the thing or subject that is most important to it. Whatever is most important to that culture, they have more words to describe it than anything else. For example, in our culture, we have over 80 words that describe money, okay? We have one word for prayer. In the Hebrew word, world, they have 30 words for prayer. So in the Hebrew world, they want to convey something. They don't have a lot of descriptor words to embellish uh, the importance of whatever it is they're saying. So when they want, to, when they want something to stand out, they, what they did was they repeated it over and over. So when we look at this poem in Genesis 1, we want to ask, what are the phrases that they repeated and what can we learn from that? What is God revealing about himself in this. So let's begin. Turn to Genesis chapter 1, if you will. I have mine open here, uh, or you can look at it on your device or pull it up on the internet, something like that. And let's start in verse 1. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Literally, the Hebrew here says, in a beginning. And we read that in the English and we go, okay, yeah, cool, in the beginning. No, this is probably the most revolutionary statement in the ancient world that you could read. Probably the most revolutionary statement ever written in the, in the ancient world. What you need to understand is that every culture in the ancient world had a story about how the world began. And they varied here and there, but there were a couple of things that all these stories had the same. No matter what culture, the, they had a few things in that story that were the same. And one of those was that some ver was this, there was some version of the gods that are in conflict. And the follow-up to that in all these stories is that the conflict of the gods results in the creation of the world and in the creation of humanity. Part and parcel to those narratives is this fact. Our fundamental job as humans is to keep the gods from being angry. We are here to appease them. So think about it this way. Let's say you go to the grain god and offer a sacrifice. And the year that you do this, there is a good crop, which means what? It means that the grain god accepted your sacrifice and was pleased with it. But then we have to consider this carefully because next year we want a good crop as well. 
And so do we just give the same offering that we gave this the year before? Uh, or would that be insulting to the grain God? So we have to give more than we did last year. And every year we have to keep giving more. And if we give a sacrifice on the other side of the coin, if we give a sacrifice and a drought comes or say locusts come and eat up all the crops, well, then it's obvious that God didn't like our sacrifice and accept it. So what do we have to do next year? We have to give more. So to sum that up, if things go good, we have to give more. If things go bad, we have to give more. You, you have to, every year you have to ante up year after year after year. And this is why there are so many pagan gods that have stories that ultimately end in some form of human sacrifice. So let's zoom forward to the story of Abraham in Genesis uh, 22, just a few flips of the page over in your scriptures. And next week, we'll look at the rest of this poem. But really, I, I want to hinge on this one verse this week, where in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and why that's important. And we're going to read the rest of this of this of the days of creation next week and, and talk about that a little bit. But I want you to think about this story of Abraham and Isaac and what it means for all of these other narratives out there that start with conflict and appeasing the gods. So if you think about this story about Abraham and Isaac, when Abraham is asked by God to sacrifice his own son, the most interesting thing about it is you never see Abraham ask, how do I do this? He already knows how to do it because he's like, of course, this is what the gods do. And the thing that really blows Abraham's mind is not that up on the mountain, God lets him off the hook. It's that God actually provides the sacrifice. And he basically comes to this, has this epiphany. He's like, I can't believe this. This isn't a God who demands appeasement. This is a God who provides and he's shocked and amazed that there is a God who provides for us. And he even gives God a new name in that story. That's the part that blows up for him because he's not used to this kind of God. This is a God who isn't angry and there's no conflict. This is not a God of karma where no matter what you do, you have to give more. I'm always confused, to be honest with you, and confounded by people who talk about good karma coming back to you because they only talked about the good karma. But karma as a concept has a dark side to it, has bad karma. And we all know uh, ourselves the best. How good are you? How bad are you? Because karma, even if you're looking at all eight types, maybe you didn't even know there's eight types when you get into the theology of that kind of thing. But it's really about the feedback loop of accumulated actions that are going to come back at you. And this is why you see instant karma videos on YouTube that people think are funny when a bad or aggressive driver ends up wrecking their own vehicle immediately after they were road, rage, road raging somebody else. So I really, I really just want to give you a teaser this week of, of what this God is like. And again, we're going to get back into it next week. And so I hope you join us then. But let's wrap this up by going back to the beginning of this poem in Genesis 1, verse 1. It's a very, very different kind of creation story because it starts like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So it is a story about a God who is not angry. It's just, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is how it began. He wasn't mad. He just got it started, and he's not mad at us. He's not mad at, he's not mad at me. He's not mad at you. 
I hope you see that as really, really good news.